That's not, that's not evil? Being hostile to all mankind and subversive is not evil? Well, I have to say that because St. Paul said the Jews are enemies of the entire human race. They are. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? Uh, did you see the video about where he said, I can't do it? Adam, I'm trying to do you a favor. You're fighting for the gay disco. Don't make your ignorance normative for the rest of us. Don't use those kinds of slurs. You're fighting for the gay disco. What? Are there are no slurs here. Die for the gay disco. This is an uprising against smug elites. Smug elites. So they're the villains, and the opposite is Definitely our most requested guest, uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, a man who needs no introduction. I mean, it is. That, that's, what they, that's what they pay the Rockefeller Foundation to do. Uh, you're not supposed to know what I just told you. They didn't know about this. They didn't know what we know now. I mean, is there any argument you can use to wake them up? Yeah, I think uh, God had a plan for your life. Well, you'd be jerking off to every curvy piece of driftwood you saw at the beach. Fight the people who don't like disco. Maybe yeah. you would. And you're consistently refusing to talk about pornography. Uh, Pete Buttigieg yeah. seems to be the exhibit A of that process. Yes, yes. Because you think that the anus is a sex organ, don't you, Pete? Uh, Richard Spencer hands out spears and he says, charge the machine gun nest. Dr. Jones. Sorry. <laughs> Not all of the heads of the Federal Reserve were Jews, but after a certain period of time, uh, that seemed to be the case. Uh, today we're going to revisit something that happened last week. Uh, after mentioning the story of the Los Angeles Dodgers hiring the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence to perform at one of their baseball games, I received the following response by email. Dr. Jones, here is a treatise I wrote for the California Coastal Commission about my hometown of Carlsbad, California, and how it is controlled by the Jewish Mafia. Both my father and I had have had direct contact with the Chicago outfit Mo Dalitz and Ron Klain. I was given the courage to write this by reading your books. I am the proud owner of most of your books. I watched your EMJ Live number 26 on the Sisters uh, and the Dodgers, and there is a paragraph on the Dodgers and the Jewish mob. The Irish Catholic owner from Boston was forced to sell the Dodgers to the Guggenheim Partners because his Jewish mafia wife took him to the cleaners in her divorce settlement. After her settlement, the Irish guy sold the team for over $1 billion, and she tried to relitigate her settlement to get the Guggenheim's money back. This is an old Sidney Korshak trick. According to, that's the end of the email, according to Wikipedia, Guggenheim Partners is a, quote, family vehicle, which manages over $300 billion in assets. Family vehicle means a vehicle of the Guggenheim family, which came into existence in America when Moses Guggenheim arrived from Alsace, where the town he was lived in was called Guggenheim, and set him up in a metals business that amassed the family fortune which has uh, the, what I just said, 
Wikipedia has grown to over $300 billion in assets since his arrival in America in 1847. No matter what it looks like at first glance, the Dodgers' sister's story is a Catholic-Jewish battle best explicated by the sociological theory known as the triple melting pot, which specifies that after three generations, all immigrant groups assimilate according to religious belief, in particular by becoming Protestants, Catholics, or Jews. The Dodgers' sister stories is a repeat of the Legion of Decency battle over Hollywood films in the 1930s. That Catholic-Jewish battle got fought at a time when the Catholics were strong and the Jews were weak because they had to go heavily in debt to finance the studio's transition to talking pictures. When the Italian Catholic who was the head of Bank America withdrew their line of credit, the Jews ran up the white flag and implemented the Hollywood Production Code, which banned, among other things, nudity, obscenity, and ridicule of the clergy, which by extension meant banning blasphemy of the sort which the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence have engaged in on a routine basis for over 40 years now. I first saw this group up close during Pope John Paul II's visit to San Francisco on September 18, 1987. Faced with the Dodgers' endorsement of homosexual blasphemy, Bishop Robert Barron called on Catholics to boycott Dodgers baseball games. The main difference between now and then is that Catholics have lost their unity largely by pretending that Jews are their elder brothers in the faith, which entails ignoring their continued involvement in culturally subversive movements like pornography, homosexuality, and blasphemy of the sort that the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence are now going to engage in at Los Angeles Dodgers baseball games. Abortion is now a fundamental Jewish value. I am routinely denounced as an anti-Semite for drawing attention to, the to these realities by fellow Catholics who studiously ignored things like Jewish and Proud, hashtag Jewish and Proud, a video produced by the World Jewish Congress which proudly announced that Jews were behind every culturally subversive movement in the 20th, in 20th century America. The Jews call their right, uh, this, this has stopped. The Jews call their right to destroy your culture, tikkun olam. And now, in case you haven't seen it, we're going to run the video where they say that. I am Jewish and proud because Jews have always done what's right. We've led the fight for gay rights. Harvey Milk fought to ban discrimination based on sexual orientation. Eddie Windsor was a leader in the fight for marriage equality. Miriam Ben Shalom challenged the ban on gay people serving in the military. We've helped lead the fight for racial justice. Our rabbis are BFFs with MLK. Together with black leaders, Jews helped to establish over 20 HBCUs. During the civil rights movement, Jews were disproportionately involved in the protests. We've led the fight for women's rights, for equal pay and the right to choose, and against discrimination in the workplace. Jews were also among the first on the ground in Turkey, Ukraine, and Haiti. In Judaism, when it comes to helping others, no action is too big or too small. The Jewish principle of tikkun olam tells us that we have the power to change the world, and there are so many ways to do that. And this is why I am Jewish and proud. Yes, the Jews call their right to destroy your culture, tikkun olam. During the Legion of Decency battle of the 1930s, Catholics had a better understanding of what was going on. In a letter to Wilfred Parsons, SJ, Joe Breen, the man who eventually became the enforcer of the Hollywood uh, production code, referred to Hollywood moguls like the Warner Brothers as Jews of Eastern European origin who were obsessed with sex and making money. Breen referred to them as, quote, the scum of the earth, close quote, and went on to claim that people like this should not enjoy, enjoy a monopoly in determining what Americans saw when they went to the movies. The Legion of Decency was 
created to orchestrate a boycott anytime the Jews in charge of Hollywood studios violated the production code. Cardinal Doherty of Philadelphia organized a boycott of Warner Brothers theaters that was so successful that it had Harry Warner crying, quote, tears as big as horse turds, to use Joe Breen's colorful phrase, because he was losing $100,000 a week in Philadelphia alone. That boycott would not have been successful if Joe Breen had been saddled with the idea that the Jews were his elder brothers in the faith, as many bishops, including Bishop Barron, have indicated since then. Nostra Aetate was the main weapon the Jews used to destroy the Legion of Decency. Catholics have been divided ever since. In his Time Magazine article on American Catholics, which appeared one month after John F. Kennedy was elected president, Reverend John Courtney Murray, SJ, specifically mentioned boycotts as something Catholics would have to give up if they wanted to be accepted as Americans in good standing. Like American blacks, American Catholics lost their cultural identity and their political power, lost their Like American blacks and American, American Catholics lost their cultural identity and their political power the moment they accepted integration into American society on that society's terms rather than their own. Notre Dame University played a crucial role in robbing Catholics of their cultural identity and their political power in exchange for foundation and then federal education money. We all knew that. The story of the land of lakes, alienation of church property, and the payback Notre Dame got for undermining the Catholic position on contraception is now part of the American Catholic narrative, thanks in no small part to articles I wrote in Culture Wars and chapters in books like John Cardinal Kroll and the Cultural Revolution and Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control. Few people, however, understand Notre Dame's role in rehabilitating and promoting the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence and their public blasphemy. The main person responsible for reinstating the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence so that they could perform at Dodger Stadium was a Notre Dame alumna by the name of Lindsay Horvath. This is uh, a quote from a local account of what she did. Los Angeles County Supervisor Lindsey P. Horvath announced on Twitter Monday afternoon after the Dodgers' apology and his accompanying public acceptance by the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence that she had been pleased to have assisted in facilitating a meeting between the team, the sisters, and stakeholders in the LGBTQ community's leadership, both nonprofit and political, to come to an understanding. 20 years ago, Lindsay Horvath was the main student responsible for organizing a performance of the Vagina Monologues at Notre Dame. Back then, I interviewed Lindsay, and then I ended up writing a story about that in which I said, Lindsay Horvath is a tribute to the primacy of ethnos and family over education, which has become a euphemism for social engineering. I said that because uh, before, uh, when I interviewed her, she said to me that she was pro-life and anti-contraception, uh, but yet she still put on the vagina monologues. Catholics, I continued, still have this residual ethnic appreciation of certain sexual truths in spite of all the efforts to engineer it out of them. The discussion of the vagina monologue showed that in spite of all of Notre Dame's efforts to the contrary, some residual lump of unmeldable pro-life Catholic ethnicity still remains in the heart of that university's beleaguered and abused students. Lindsay can put on her sexy red dress and walk up to the mic and talk dirty in Washington Hall, but she's still Catholic in some unmeldably ethnic sense of the word after all. 
That's the good news. The bad news is that she doesn't know her left hand from her right. The bad news is that she, like the rest of her peers at Notre Dame, is still a sheep without a shepherd, and it looks as if she will remain that way for the foreseeable future. I said this because during our interview, uh, Ms. Horvath told me that she was against abortion and contraception. She could have been lying to me then, but then again, maybe she was sincere and has changed since then. As Sam Goldwyn once said, the secret of success is sincerity. Once you can fake that, you've got it made. This is the lesson Lindsay learned at Notre Dame the lesson Catholics learned in the expensive school of experience is that our elder brothers are the scum of the earth. All right. We're just going to jump in the chat right now. Uh, hopefully, let's see, you guys on Cozy. It sounds like uh, people in Telegram couldn't hear. So if you guys can, on Cozy, uh, you were probably able to hear what Dr. Jones was talking about. Uh, make sure you jump in our Telegram uh, and ask some questions because you actually heard what was said. Um, I go, let me quickly go over the chat rules. Uh, uh, call and remain on Telegram chat, and the link is in the description for everybody. Uh, and to Telegram, we'll call on those who raise their hands. And then later in the stream, we'll read off all the questions from Cozy uh, and some on Telegram. There are no paid super chats. Try to keep the one question. Try to keep one question at a time. <clears throat> be respectful of people's times. And do not, whatever you do, do not forget to unmute. Very important. All right, that's, that's my technical rant. Time to jump to Telegram, and we are discussing the Sisters of Perpetual Adoration and the Dodgers. Okay, uh, Amy Smith, go ahead. Oh, I didn't think I'd be first. Hello, Dr. Jim. Hello. I just, I just wanted to raise from the other day, you were talking about how the women who you know, they knuckled under and they, they threw you under the bus and said, you can't be associated with Jones because he talks about Jews. Um, just the idea that they're, it's the fact that they're women. Um, I just want to say that a lot of men are exhibiting that same type of behavior pattern. <laughs> and it's just kind of frustrating because I know you're a mature adult with, you know, several daughters and grandkids probably who are female, but sometimes these younger guys are kind of acting like if women just shut up and let men do everything, then that's going to fix everything. But it's also um, the masculinity has to be restored in men to be good leaders. And yeah. if men aren't, um, sometimes we're going to step up and say things, I guess. That's, that's, right. that's kind of my pushback. But what yeah, do you think? I think you're right. Uh, Gloria Steinem said, she's the famous uh, feminist. She said, uh, we are becoming the men who let us down. That's, I think, a fundamental fact of the rise of feminism. She was one of the seminal feminists. She worked for the CIA. Uh, same, something similar happened uh, during the civil rights movement when uh, the women uh, rebelled against the sexual exploitation that they were either subjected to or willingly subjected themselves to. And that uh, created this huge amount of resentment uh, among uh, left-wing women, and that found its outlet in the mobilization of uh, women uh, as revolutionaries, and uh, the rest is history. So let me state at the beginning here, I have nothing against women. I even married a woman. Uh, I wouldn't want my daughters to marry one, but uh, I have nothing against women, and I think you are right in saying that the problem is the men. It's men who have no sense of direction, have no sense of masculinity uh, because they've been robbed it uh, by all of the things we've talked about, uh, social engineering, especially pornography, debt, uh, the general cultural assault, uh, assault against uh, the family, uh, the authoritarian personality made the father the victim, uh, all of culture is lined up against these poor guys, so I think that they deserve some type of understanding as well. But you're right, there is a vacuum, and the fact, the matter is that we, uh, basically Patrick brought this up to me, uh, that uh, the, the launch, the assault that was launched against him uh, in the Hope is Fuel conference was spearheaded by women. 
uh, you can go to the deep, the back channels here. Uh, and it was also orchestrated by women. It was orchestrated by Dawn Goldstein. And her assistant in this assault was uh, Mark Shea. So it was women in control of this operation, for better or for worse. Uh, and it was uh, people like uh, Mark Shea support, engaging in a supporting role. There were as many men who caved in as there were women. So for what it's worth, that's my take on that. And do you want to add anything about what women can be doing to help um, restore the, you know, um, you know, women shouldn't be piling on men either because men have been subjected to all kinds of social engineering as have women. So what's the best we can do to heal our way out of that and pray our way out of that? To be as, as natural as possible, to identify with what you are, uh, to, uh, to search uh, I'm talking about women now, search your soul uh, and see whether you're picking up uh, feminism some way or another. We breathe this in with the air and oftentimes we react in a way that we don't even understand how we're reacting. That's, that's part of the problem here. Uh, that's, look, let, me, let me put it this way. The crucial moment is when you're in your 20s you know, when you have to attract a member of the opposite sex. Uh, and it's only going to happen if nature, in a sense, is let to act uh, free reign, which means that men will act like men and women will act like women. The problem here is that uh, men who have no understanding of what it means to be a man because of the culture they've been raised in will also often go to extreme forms of macho behavior as a way of demonstrating, well, I'll show them, I'll do X, Y, and Z, uh, and engage in a, the simply a reactive form of behavior to the to the norm that is being proposed of the wimpy uh, guy. This is uh, I'm de I'm dealing with this uh, in Germany, dealing with the young people in Germany who basically have been taught to be, as they put it, uh, Zitzpinkler. Men who pee sitting down. That's a term of opprobrium now in Germany because of the widespread success of social engineering over there. And I'm trying to explain that there is a middle way here. Okay, you don't have to rush off and be this super macho guy and to compensate for your, the fact that you're insecure about being a man. There is a middle way. And I think with God's grace, uh, you can find it. And with God's grace, you'll find that woman there who uh, is looking for you as well. But nature must out here. Men must be men and women must be women. Uh, all right, so let's go to the next caller here. Uh, let's see, Thomas, uh, go ahead. All right, can you hear me? I can. Okay, great, Dr. Jones. Uh, just a quick question. Uh, what do you think's worse, denying the divinity and crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ or calling into question the fruits of the church since the 1960s? Uh, the first, obviously. Well, the, the reason I ask this is because, and I don't really have anything against them because I do view them as a strong moral force in secular atheist Britain, but sometimes I think maybe you're a bit too harsh on the people who like Bishop Williamson and very nice to Muslims. Not that I especially have anything against Muslims. Well, give me credit for being uh, uh, holding Jews uh, accountable for their behavior. Okay. Okay, sure, that, sure. That, that's, no, that, definitely. Okay, Just the, the, let oh, me, sorry. okay sorry. so let me get back to... Look, I have met with William, Bishop Williamson in person many times. Right. I like right. I like the guy. I like being in his company. I like talking to him. Yeah. But that does na yeah. not change the fact that schism is a grievous sin against charity and that he had the opportunity to end the schism and strengthen the church. He, I, I traveled all the way to Wimbledon to talk to him about this, and he refused. Yeah. This, he's got a death wish. 
He wants to die outside the church. I am not going to, in the interest of some type of conservative or right-wing solidarity, I am not going to pretend that schism isn't a sin. I'm sorry. I, I, I respect Bishop Williamson too much to basically play into that uh, uh, trap. So, yes, I'm a friend of Plato, but I'm a greater friend of the truth. Okay, no, that's a good response. And I just want to say I have a lot of respect for you. The only reason I bring this into question is that I met recently with the bishop because you and him are both the reasons how, why I became Catholic. And the thing that I'm finding it difficult to reconcile, because I have so much respect for each of you, is that, um, you know, it, it, it feels difficult, actually, having... He's been a gentleman to me, but having met and spoken to people in that sort of wing in England, it feels difficult to reconcile the fact that I really like E. Michael Jones and I really like Bishop Williamson, both outspoken members of Catholic truth. But, you know, th there's a lot of conflict between the issue of what happened in, in the 20th century that for a novice like me is hard to reconcile. I guess my final thing is, do you think going to a Williamson mass is bad? Do you think those people are still Catholic, even if you disagree they with are, them? Is that a fair question? They are schismatic Catholics. And if you participate in their worship service, you are engaging in schism. You are refusing to associate with the body of the Catholic Church. And that is a grievous sin against charity. And if you lack charity, you cannot be saved. So I'm saying this with all seriousness, uh, knowing that uh, he's a gentleman. I agree with you. He's a gentleman. But there are some issues that are bigger than that. And this is a big issue. There is no way around it. And I really feel sad that I walked into the SSPX headquarters in England, that he greeted me at the door and he told me that he had a letter from Rome saying, I accept Vatican II in light of tradition. Why didn't he sign that letter? Do you realize how the situation in the church would have changed if that had happened? If he were in the church as opposed to outside of the church, if he had a voice in what the church was doing right now, it would be a completely different situation. And we're weak because of that disunity. Everything I said tonight about the legion of decency, about the lack of unity, about the power of the Jews to, to, to uh, disrupt our culture, all of that would have been weakened if he had made that decision, a decision that he said Archbishop Lefebvre would have done. Or he said to me, Archbishop Lefebvre would have signed that letter. That's crazy. I'm sorry. No matter how much I like the guy, that is crazy. And he should never have done it. And if he hadn't done it, if he had signed the letter, it, we would be in a much different place, a much stronger position than the one we are in right now. All right. Thank you very much. And just to say, I owe you a lot personally for my journey towards Catholicism. And one day I hope to shake your hand. Thank you for your good response. Thank you. Thank you for calling. You're welcome. All right. Thanks, Millie and Thomas. Um, next, we have uh, GBOSS88. Go ahead. Hello, Dr. Jones. I know it's been a while since I've asked a question, but um, one question I'd like to ask is in regards to this so-called Pride Month that we're occurring. So I just came in, um, but... I think one question I'll have is I saw this meme about like, um, you know, all these Pride Month companies because you know how like uh, sometimes like these companies change their logos like to all these like uh, gay colors during this time. So there, I saw this one meme that said that like there wasn't a lot of that um, this year. And, um, you know, I've yet to like actually fact check that myself. But like if that's true and we're seeing like and we're not seeing so much of that whole logo change that you know we usually see around this time of year uh what could that mean in terms of like the way society is going moving forward it could mean that people are waking up to reality and realizing that this is toxic for your business how many did we learn that lesson this year have, have these people been paying <laughs> attention to what happened to bud light uh, uh, yeah, uh, that, that's uh, one thing uh, that came you, out with the you, Bud Light thing. Uh, and uh, uh, this, is, this has got to be one of the greatest mistakes in, mar in the history of marketing, that you dropped 
20% immediately within a week and another 30% in the next week. And the, this genius is wrecking your company. What, where were they, what were they thinking? What were they thinking? So, and then add uh, that to Target. Okay, Target went down the drain. Okay, Target, let's be honest here. Target, these big box stores are on their last legs. They're going to go out of business. They're all 20 of them are going to go out of business in the next month uh, because of a combination of shoplifting and Amazon. Okay, and at this critical, crucial moment, critical moment in their history, they decide to get on the transgender bandwagon with underwear. You've got to be crazy. What are you thinking? And then add that, add to that, the Dodgers debacle. If, if, there, if there are any Catholics out there who ever again go to a Dodgers game, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should go to confession for betraying the Catholic faith, for participating in the blasphemy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the homosexual mockery of our Lord Jesus Christ. You should be ashamed of yourself. No Catholic should ever go to a Dodgers game again. This is the message that we have to derive from these people ridiculing us and mocking us and treating us, uh, and worse. I mean, try, uh, look at Merrick Garland, the attorney general, the Jewish attorney general, going after Catholic pro-lifers, where Antifa gets off beating up old men who are protesting in front of abortion clinics. This has got to stop. And the, the way to have it stop is Catholic solidarity. And the first expression of Catholic solidarity in this moment is boycott the Dodgers. If you don't do that, you shouldn't call yourself a Catholic. Mm, I think that answers my question a lot. Um, that, that, but it's a good sign. It's, it's a really good sign, especially with, uh, it seems like society is moving in the right direction and it seems like the uh, rubbish has gotten to a point where it's like, you know, the average American doesn't want to, you know, swallow that, you know, crap anymore. So uh, I, I think you've answered my question. Thank you very much, Dr. Jones. Thank you for everything you do. Uh, I hope to see you again next time. Thank you. All right. Thanks, G-Boss. Uh, next, we're going to go for Lloyd. Good old Lloyd. Uh, go ahead, Lloyd. Oh, hi, Mike. It's um, good to speak with you again. Good day, I just want to sort of inject some... Hello? Good day, mate. Oh, good day. <laughs> I just want to sort of inject some positivity here. Uh, most people would know that Australia's been through some horrendous times with COVID, et cetera. And I really sense a pushback happening. Um, politically, both mainstream parties have dumped Christians and I've had multiple conversations with people around how the restoration looks and everyone to a man is saying it must be Christian led. And um, I just want to say, once you've hit the bottom of the, um, the hill, the only way back is to unify as Christians and make choices that way. Uh, people no longer watch TV anymore in this country. They're only listening to people like you, Dr. Jones. So I just want to inject that, um, that positivity. So it's more uh, observation than a question, but I'd like your comment on that too. Yeah, well, Lloyd, you've been involved in this from, from the beginning. You were the one who understood the importance of unity. We've been talking about this for years, and you were the one who understood it. And we were going to go to, you know, go to, on the warpath against gay marriage, and the bishops wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't talk to me. You tried to arrange it. You understood the, per the, the, the importance of unity. This, this is exactly what I'm trying to say vis-a-vis -vis Bishop Williamson. You're destroying unity. You're destroying Catholic power by siphoning people off into these little, little never-never-land chapels. That's, that's a sin against unity, and this is the practical consequence of your sin against unity, is that the Catholics are unable to mobilize. First of all, because you have Catholics like Lindsay Horvath, who is working for the Jews uh, because of her Notre Dame education. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have people withdrawing from the church into their own little traditionalist enclaves. Okay, These are both sins against unity. Lord, you're the guy who understands this. You're the guy who went to uh, the political party and said, we don't have representative government, and everybody cheered. This is what we yeah. need to do. We need to capitalize on this moment. We need to read the signs of the times. We have to understand what is happening, and then we have to act. 
And the, the sine qua non of action is a we. Is there a we out there? Is there a Catholic we? There was in 1933. There, when, when Cardinal Doherty called for a boycott, no Catholic went to the movies in Philadelphia. And Harry, as I said already, Harry, Tur Harry Warner was losing $100,000 a week in Philadelphia alone. That was $1933. That's real money. And that could have extended to every Catholic city with a city in America with a large Catholic population. He would have crushed, we would have crushed Hollywood. But we showed them mercy, and this is the way they repay you for showing mercy. Okay? They use it with Nostra Tate to basically destroy your culture and brag about it uh, with the term Tikkun Olam, as if they're all virtuous people. These are not virtuous people. These are revolutionaries. I've explained why in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And we need unity in order to confront them. And you understand that, Lloyd. And I thank you for it. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Lloyd, there. Let's see. Who was next? Elros. I think I've seen you up for a while. Uh, go ahead, Elros. Hi. Uh, can you hear me, Doctor? I can. Well, a pleasure to speak to you again. Um, I'm glad that uh, Patrick Coffin um, stuck to his guns and stayed by your side on the recent uh, uh, attack he was subjected to. Um, but my question is a, a little bit unrelated, so or quite a bit unrelated. I'm a I'm something of a Tolkien enthusiast, and there on several occasions I've listened to a critique you make of Tolkien's use of allegorical symbolism as manifest in the ring of power. And I I don't actually have a dog in this fight because I, I think you might be correct. I've, I've just, on, on the occasions I've heard you, you make this argument, I, I really haven't understood it very well. And so uh, I was hoping you could clarify uh, to me what, what it is he got wrong. Yeah, now, uh, if you, the, the best way to understand this is to go to the website and uh, look up a copy of Tolkien's Failed Quest. It was published as an article in Culture Wars magazine. This is the type of stuff you get on a monthly basis in Culture Wars magazine. But to get back to your question, uh, the ring, uh, Tolkien was always self-conscious about his German heritage because his prime of his life was basically between the first war against Germany and the second war against Germany that was conducted by the British with uh, the help of the Americans. So in the midst, in that interregnum there, uh, Tolkien decided to write a children's story for his, for his children, uh, and it was called The Hobbit. And The Hobbit has a clearer, I think, understanding of uh, the ring and the relationship to the, uh, to the dwarves. Now, by the time, uh, uh, now, the dwarves uh, are Jews. He says that pretty much. It's pretty clear that the dwarves are Jews because they they're dig underground and they like gold and metal and stuff like that. Okay? Uh, these are, the, the idea for this came from Richard Wagner's uh, ring cycle, specifically Das Rheingold the first uh, part, the first segment, the first opera that makes up the ring cycle. It is an absolutely brilliant mythological understanding of the origins of capitalism. And Wagner wrote it after the failed revolution of 1848. He was a fugitive. They were going to arrest him and probably try him for treason and execute him. And he escaped to Switzerland and he spent years working on this. How, how do I understand why the revolution failed? And it all revolves around das Rheingold, okay? It's the gold that's at the bottom of the river, the Rhine. It's guarded by four Rhine maidens. Uh, uh, Alberic shows up. Everybody at this time knew that Alberic was a Jew. Everybody knew that, okay? Alberich comes and he tries to seduce the Rhine maidens. They lead him on and suddenly they rebuke him at the last moment and he's full of rage and he steals the Rhine gold. He steals the gold. The gold is the patrimony of the German people and it's been privatized by a Jew now. What he's talking about is Meyer Amschel Rothschild, uh, 
the Jew, Jewish usurer from Frankfurt, who basically took the Prince of Hesse Castle's money, uh, gave it to his son Nathan in London, who bet the, bet, the, bet the whole thing on the console and made a fortune. Okay, that's what we're talking about here, the privatization of the public good, the public wealth. Okay, when Meyer Rothschild, when Alberich took that gold, he put it to send it down to his little minions, to the dwarves that were his slaves, and they turned it into a ring. And that ring exerted power over everyone, and that's how he ruled the world. What is the ring? It's usury. Meyer will lend you gold, and you will pay back with compound interest, and he will control the world. And that's precisely what happened to England in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. These English lords were land rich and cash poor. They wanted to big build houses, and they borrowed money from Jews like Natty Rothschild, and they went into debt, and they lost everything. Classic example is Randolph Churchill, Winston Churchill's father, died 70,000 pounds in debt to um, Natty Rothschild. This is all in Baron Metal, if you want to read the full story. So this is what Tolkien inherits, except that he's conflicted now. Wagner was not conflicted. He understood the role that the Jews played in capitalism. He understood, because capitalism is state-sponsored usury, he understood the role the Jews played in betraying the revolution of 1848, and he, he could deal with it honestly. Tolkien can't do that. He can't do that because he's a deeply conflicted guy who is basically a German living in England at the time that England is at war and Germany is persecuting the Jews. So he immediately sides with the Jews. And once you do that uh, and you start doing this ring thing, it doesn't make any sense anymore. It doesn't make sense. I read uh, Tolkien, the first time I read it, I think I was 17 years old and I'm basically enthralled by this story. It's a great story. The English consider it the greatest book of the 20th century, but I couldn't figure out the ring because you can't figure right. it out. That, that's the problem. It, was only, it wasn't until I listened to Wagner's Rheingold many years later that I finally understood what was going on. So you're saying the ring is basically incoherent. It doesn't have a, a basis. In right. Rog Wagner's ring is totally incoherent. It's a brilliant symbol. It makes sense. Uh, but Tolkien's doesn't. That's my point. Yes. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Jones. You're welcome. Okay. <clears throat> Next we have, let's see, uh, Joe. Go ahead, Joe. Hello. Can you hear me? Hello. Hello. Oh, can you hear me? I can. Hello. Can you? Okay, great. Dr. Jones, thank you. Uh, good evening, and thank you so much for taking my um, call. I'm going to apologize ahead of time to see if uh, if you've already commented on it and I came in late. But have you heard the interview between Bishop Barron and um, uh, Ben Shapiro? You mean the latest interview about the Eucharist? Latest one about the Eucharist. the Eucharist. Yes, I did hear it. And I just wanted to hear your take on it. I think it's look. I have really nothing to object to with this interview. It, it's, it was a straightforward try to talking about, starts off by talking about the natural law, and then Barron gets into the, the Jewish roots of the Eucharist, which are true, okay? There, it is uh, a, a, a Christian exaltation of the Passover and so on and so forth. It was appropriate in my, in my understanding that he should talk this way to Ben Shapiro. The only thing I objected to was this constant use of the term Judeo-Christian which is a, bog mm. a bogus term. But otherwise, I didn't have any objection to that video. Now, that being said, I've already said I had a lot of objection to the first video where Ben Shapiro says to uh, Bishop Barron, am I going to hell? And at that point, mm. Bishop Barron should have said, Ben, are you baptized? And Ben would have said no. And Bishop Barron said, well, baptism is necessary for salvation. If you refuse to be baptized, you cannot be saved. That's what he should have said. He didn't say it. He danced around, made a fool out of himself by not understanding invincible ignorance, a fool out of himself by uh, uh, misunderstanding Nostra Tate and so on and so forth. But that was that one. And I don't, I don't think, I think he was okay 
in this second video. I have to say that. Give him credit where credit's due. Thank you, Dr. Jones. You're welcome. Okay, we're gonna do a couple more here on Telegram, and then I'm gonna jump to uh, Cozy and ask the questions. So guys on Cozy, start asking in the chat what you wanna hear. Next, we're going to Future Citizen. Go ahead, ask your question. Hello, Dr. Jones, can you hear me all right? I can. All right. So I, I'm, I don't know if you touched on this in Baron Metal, but I, I have seen some excerpts. Um, this concept of the Zolverine, uh, Solferine. You know, a large proponent. Zolferine. 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 Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Friedrich List was a proponent, and he was kicked out of parliament, basically, I believe, or some sort of German cabinet. And he was kicked, you know, exiled to America. And where did he learn how to flesh out this ideal, this, this nationalist political uh, system? He learns it from Alexander Hamilton, right? No, no, wait, um, no, I, I wouldn't say that. He learned it in Philadelphia. He went to Philadelphia. This is really? the, this is the 1830s. Yeah, if you read Baron Metal, this is clear. This is long after Alexander Hamilton is gone. Uh, so there there are two things that Hamilton wrote. He wrote a, a a letter on manufacturers, which is protectionist. So in that sense, he's in alignment with uh, List. And then he wrote a letter on banking, which is pro usury, which deliberately contra contradicts the first letter. But no, it was not. Um, it was not Hamilton. It was, and I'm drawing a blank here about the American protectionist, uh, the leader of the American protectionist. He was a Philadelphian. Well, the, the American system, there was a few proponents. Um, of course, the National Bank is very misunderstood. Um, and the report on manufacturers is basically the national political system in action. Right. Um, it, you right. know, in his um, principles, uh, along with people like Henry Carey and McKinley. Henry Carey, that's um, the man, that's, that's the guy whose name I forgot. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, these guys, these guys built America and it was taken over quite, quite soon after Hamilton died with the second bank and the Federal Reserve System. Um, the Warburg family is, you know, of course, uh, the Jekyll Islands um, uh, situation with J.P. Morgan, they, they build the Federal Reserve. Um, anyway, yeah, I just wanted to get your thoughts it's quite quite ironic and a quite sad um, tale that Friedrich List's post was taken over by Karl Marx. <laughs> it's quite an ironic sort of situation. And the reason we don't see a Zolverein in uh, America is because the spearheads of, of these unions are all Marxists. They all revolve around the free trading Ricardian view. So I just yeah. wanted to get your idea on American unions and Friedrich List. Yeah, yeah. Friedrich List was a visionary a great visionary, uh, and he was absolutely right about uh, uh, the Zollverein. The Zollverein is the customs union in Germany. That's what it was referring to. Uh, if you lived in Germany in, let's say, the 16th century, and you were in uh, Weimar, let's say, and you wanted to ship something to Hamburg, you had to pay toll uh, uh, customs duties with, uh, to about 20 different countries before it got to Hamburg. Well, that's crazy. You're never going to have an economy like that. And so List's great idea was to combine uh, the railroad, which was just coming into existence in the 1830s, along with the abolition of internal tariff and the substitution of internal tariff for external tariff, which made complete sense. It was exactly what the United States had done at the beginning vis-a-vis -vis England. Okay, you had to, at this period in time, you had to put tariffs on English goods, like cotton, for example, cotton cloth. Because if you didn't, they could undermine every single manufacturing company in your, in your country. You could not compete against English manufacturing. And that's why the English believed in free trade. So List uh, was smart enough to understand that. He persuaded uh, the basically the leaders of all these German principalities to abolish internal tariffs, to build railroads, to create external tariffs. And that's what uh, concentrated German labor, along with Bismarck's uh, peace accord with Bishop von Kettler and the Catholics, the ending of the Kulturkampf, concentrated German labor. Labor is the source of all value. And by 1910, Germany had surpassed England as the strongest economy in Europe. 
That was all thanks to Friedrich List. I can't uh, underestimate the importance. I can't overestimate the importance of Friedrich List. Okay, and if you want the full story and the big picture by Baron Metal, the history of capitalism is the conflict between labor and usury. This is what we have to come back to in this country. We, once the American empire collapses, which is going to happen soon, thanks to our, our, our Jewish uh, Biden's minion here and their reckless behavior, we are going to have to go back to manufacturing things. Uh, because labor is the source of all value. Thank you, Dr. Jones. You're welcome. Okay, we got some time left here, so we're just going to jump right to Cozy. Try to answer your questions. Let's see, where did we start here? Uh, from uh, from Catulus on Cozy question, Dr. Jones. Uh, please, can you talk a little bit about what really happened with Maximilian Kobe in Auschwitz? Thank you. Uh, Maximil uh, so uh, there was some type of uh, uprising uh, at Auschwitz. The Nazis uh, decided they were going to punish, uh, they were going to kill 10 men uh, in retaliation. And Maximilian Kolbe uh, volunteered to take the place of one of those men uh, because he was a family man. Obviously, Maximilian Kolbe was a priest. And so they injected carbolic acid into him and he died. And there's no, like, some odd conspiracy if he did die, he didn't die. I hear these things. It's basically what we hear is what happened. That's what I know. I'm telling you what I know. Uh, what what we do know is he, he certainly didn't die in a gas chamber. That's for sure. Okay. Um, from Kingfish AF, uh, Dr. Jones, on a scale of Weimar Germany to Iran, how far should we go with anti-LGBT laws in the U.S.? I think we should follow the example of the Africans. <laughs> uh, look at what Uganda just did. I think they made homosexuality a capital crime. Um, well, maybe we shouldn't make it a capital crime. Now, I'll, I'm willing to, I have an open mind. Maybe it shouldn't be a capital crime, but it sure, I think it should be a criminal behavior. And by saying this, I have com completely contradicted by Pope Francis who is now saying that uh, homosexuality should be decriminalized throughout the entire world. I can't believe that the Pope uh, would say something like this at a moment when we're facing Armageddon, World War III, nuclear holocaust. Why is he pro promoting uh, the decriminalization of homosexuality? Uh, well, because James Martin is a Jesuit and probably has his ear and told him to do it. I think that's why, okay? Uh, Anyway, I don't want to get further into that, but I do want to say that the the Ugandans have held the line. Now, it's for certain. First of all, uh, homosexuality is. I mean, I've heard a priest say this. It's unknown in Africa. Okay, that was years ago when he said it, but basically he said it was unknown. It's just not part of the African consciousness. We have the Pope going to Uganda and telling him to decriminalize it, and in response, they made it a capital crime. Okay, you shouldn't, um, uh, you know, you shouldn't squander your authority by doing something this stupid. I'm sorry, I, with all due respect to the papacy, uh, this was really stupid. But I think that we need to see that the Africans, I know my, the white boys are going to be happy to hear this, but the Africans are holding the line when it comes to homosexuality. And we need to follow their example as Catholics, fellow Catholics. Because, let me just, one more thing, because the, the, the basically the East Africa and Uganda in particular, the spiritual center of East Africa is the shrine of the Ugandan martyrs. This is their feast day today. They die rather than give in to the homosexual advances of the king. And so anti-homosexuality is part of the DNA of African Catholicism. That's why they're not going to give in. It's their identity. It's, a, it's one of the main pillars of their Catholic identity. And I think we should look to them as an example of what not to do. All right. Uh, from Juan Diego, Dr. Jones, should American Catholics celebrate the 4th of July um, besides the... Um, uh, uh, fourth, besides the America was created by hatred against Catholics. So basically, I think he's asking, should, should Catholics be celebrating Fourth of July even though that the United States is kind of Catholicating? 
Yes, Americans should celebrate the 4th of July. Okay, I, I arrived in South Bend, Indiana in 1979. And one of the first things that struck me about South Bend, Indiana was the 4th of July celebration. We went downtown and I was struck by the true diversity of the people who showed up for the 4th of July celebration. Now, what do I mean by diversity? And not what people talk about today. I'm talking about the fact that there were guys there who were, looked like lawyers, you know, ready to go play golf. There were bikers there with their Harley Davidsons and there were everybody in between uh, all coming together as citizens of South Bend, Indiana. Okay, that South Bend has been destroyed and the main villain was Pete Buttigieg, the man who became the, the homosexual mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Because after that, and this was a national trend, it wasn't just South Bend, Indiana, every parade has to be a gay pride parade because the homosexuals will demand to be represented, the civil authorities will cave in, and at that point, decent people just don't go anymore. You won't see that crowd there anymore because decent people stay at home because they don't want to participate in the glorification of homosexuality. That's what happened over this time. So yes, uh, the answer is yes, you should celebrate the 4th of July. No, if it's a gay pride parade, don't go. Celebrate it some other way. Uh, from uh, Cozy, uh, Dr. Jones, uh, could you uh, maybe give some ideas on why Christ is allowing this Pope to say the things he does? Well, the next time I'll talk to him, I'll ask him. But uh, I haven't been able to talk to him in person. Uh, during my entire lifetime and probably won't. Uh, I will meet him at my, when he judges me at the, my personal judgment. But until then, we have to rely uh, on reason uh, as our guide for historical understanding. So why does God allow evil? Because he knows that we can bring some greater good out of it and the greater good begins with consciousness. And so he has helped clarify the thing I just said about Uganda, the Pope visiting Uganda, uh, leads to a clarification of our understanding of the situation. Now, I have to make a confession here. I started this operation and I called the, um, the not-for-profit corporation that uh, publishes the magazine, Ultramontane Associates because I was referencing the battle between the Gallicans, who were the French nationalist and church, and the Ultramontanists, who were the, uh, the, the Frenchmen loyal to Rome, because I felt that that was the situation in, the 19, in 1981 when we started this whole operation, that I supported the Pope, Pope John Paul II. I felt that uh, his, his example should be spread among American bishops who were just too close to the government. Well, they're much closer now than they ever were back then. And we have a Pope that is basically uh, punishing me for my ultramontanism. I, had to, I have to purify my ultramontanism by understanding that uh, the Pope is not the church. You know, maybe that was the sin I, I committed back then. Uh, but the consciousness is now uh, that we have to understand uh, church authority in a deeper sense than we did back then. From St. Paul Enjoyer, uh, question. Do Greek Orthodox lack charity and are they going to hell too? You have to, you have to make a distinction between formal schism and material schism. So uh, when, the, when the break took place, it's very similar to the Protestant Reformation, okay? You have a group of people, who, the, the church is led by leaders, they make a decision, they separate themselves from the Church of Rome. That is schism, and that's a serious sin. We've already talked about that, okay? It's very similar to the situation of Protestants. Those Protestant reformers engaged in serious sin. Uh, when they broke the unity of the Catholic Church. And on top of that, they were all thieves and, and uh, looters to, on top of that. But that's not the, the Protestants uh, who grew up uh, 500 years later, who were born into a cultural situation uh, that 
is different. You're born into a situation where your parents and grandparents and so on and so forth uh, are members of this Protestant church, and it seems like the normal thing to do to you. Same thing with the Greek Orthodox, which is now re, uh, reinforced by an ethnic identity. So that's a different situation. And you can't, you, it's not the same situation. It's not this willful breaking of unity. You're born into something that you have to understand. And the process of understanding is gradual. So if you want to know, if you want a really, uh, what should I say, in-depth look at this in a real situation, uh, read my forthcoming article on Nathaniel Hawthorne and why he was, God brought him to Rome and why he was unable to convert to the, to the Catholic faith. Uh, it's an in-depth study uh, that allowed me to tie threads together of my life that go stretch over 50 years now. All right, uh, Dr. Jones, 6021, we'll do a couple more here? Yeah, let's do a couple more. All right, um, from Matt Monday. Um, question, is Harry Potter based or cringe? Is it based or cringe? Is yes. that what you said? Yes. Uh, b b yes. Based is ha good. Harry, Harry Potter is the fantasy of a single mother on a train wondering about the future of her child and how what about education is. So it's an, a, a misunderstanding of what education is based on that, that fact. And it involves a, a serious case of cultural narcissism. If you, I, I've written it length on this. It's in Culture Wars. You can find it on the Culture Wars website about Harry Potter and, and cultural narcissism, uh, which is basically bad f f for children. So, for example, uh, every so he gets this kid uh, is uh, raised by Muggles who are Philistines. You know, my parents don't understand me. But I get accepted at the Hogwarts School of Magic, so because I got 1,800 on my college board, 1,600 on my college boards. And so I'm special. And so what do you do when you go there? You learn magic spells. What are the magic spells? If you read the book, it's Latin. Well, this is a lady who doesn't understand why you would study Latin. You study Latin to learn grammar and a vocabulary that will help you understand the English language. But she thinks it's magic. And magic is basically, if I say this word in Latin, money will appear in my pocket or something. That's what magic is. A lady who doesn't understand anything about education or about culture or, or anything else, and a book that is suffused with this cultural narcissism. So if you're asking me, do I recommend this, that you read this to your children? The answer is no, no, because it fills you with all of the wrong ideas. Another example of this is sports. The way sports is portrayed in Harry Potter is not sports. It's not sports. I engaged in sports as a teenager. I remember uh, I, I'm engaging in sports now. I do it to keep healthy. Okay, I rode uh, in college. Uh, I remember watching somebody go over, do the high jump over a bar that was almost seven feet in the air. I'm amazed. How do you do that? It, it's magic. No, it's not magic. It's something else. And if you believe in magic, you're never going to get over the bar. I remember a guy on the dock with a single, which is about maybe at the widest point, maybe 18 inches wide, a very unstable boat. Okay, as many people, I myself have found out the number of times I've flipped it and ended up in the water. Okay, this man puts one foot down as if it's a scooter puts the other foot on the dock and pushes off. Unbelievable. How did you do this? Well, he did it. And then he sat down in the boat and started when it rode off. I can't believe that this guy just did this. This is a type of magic that you see when you're a young guy watching older guys who have mastered a skill. It's not magic, it's skill. And so she's completely destroying education on the one hand and sports which is a big part of English education on the other and it just instills narcissistic fantasies in children and that's bad so don't read it all right uh, one more doc yeah all right uh, from base phone charger uh, question is uh, dr. Jones uh, what do you think about uh, the last temptation of Christ is there any way to show the human side of Christ yes there is but this ain't it 
So again, it's not as if I don't know of this story. I've written a story about it. It's uh, Marty's, uh, Marty's Christ, uh, why he wrote The Last Temptation of Christ. J Marty Scorsese is the director of this thing. Uh, he was uh, a Catholic seminarian for a while, and then he broke away with the Catholic semin seminarians he, and it linked up with this guy, uh, Robbie Robertson. He called a, did a documentary uh, called The Last Waltz about the band and the breakup of the band, and they were living the high life, the uh, hedonistic life of California in some bachelor pad, and this is where he decided to do uh, last Temptation of Christ. So it was an appeal to the Jewish uh, control people, the Jews who control Hollywood, who like blasphemy. Uh, uh, that was part of it. But it's also Marty Scorsese trying to prove that he was right and Jesus was wrong. And Marty was right in leaving the seminary. So it's all that personal testimony compounded by Jewish patronage, compounded by Kulturkampf. And go to culturewars.com and you can read the whole article. All right, well, thanks, guys. That concludes another episode of EMJ Live. Uh, these are every Friday at 5 Eastern Standard Time. If you guys don't know, I help Dr. Jones with these. I'm his media guy. This is Mike Bajakis. Uh, if you are not always subscribed, subscribe to culturewars.com. Dr. Jones mentioned how all these cool articles are on our magazine. And if you want all of them at your fingertips at any time, culturewars.com, subscribe. And then for the books, go to fidelitypress.org. Everyone on Cozy, obviously follow us. We're on Telegram, follow us. You guys know, all links in descriptions. And so there were some people asking about the Holocaust book in the description. Is it, uh, we're still holding up on that? Still, it's around the corner, Dr. Jones? Yeah, it's at the printer. We're waiting for a publication date. All right, we'll let you guys know. Uh, what's the last word, Doc? What you got? Thank everyone for coming. I, I have to say, I think that the discussion is getting better every week. Every week we have better, better questions, more meeting of the minds uh, than the week before. So I, I look forward to this every week, and we'll see you again next Friday. All right. Thanks, guys. God bless.